0: a series of five sermons on suffering and Monday night at Cafe Veritas we watched a documentary of the Rwandan genocide. I was in a coffee shop downtown here on Wednesday and the guy working at the coffee shop was looking at a book of photography Annie Leibovitz Leibovitz. and um, I didn't know this but she shot a photograph right after the genocide in Rwanda, and it's of a bathroom stall that there's bloody footprints running up the wall. Now, this is the world we live in, right? Where children are chased into bathrooms and slaughtered. So, Paul didn't... He wasn't ignorant of that. He lived during the Roman Empire. You know, we made a movie about that called The Gladiator. It's not the nicest of ways to treat people. We live in this painful world, and yet in these passages, and if you read the Psalms very often, throughout the Psalms, there's two dominant voices. Pain, suffering, accusation, and joy. I mean, the, both realities sit right in the heart of Scriptures. And, and Scripture shows us that joy is this distinctive mark of those who follow God. Now, the question is, how can that be? And how can these two how can joy be a distinctive mark when all things have not been made new? When terrible things happen. Look with me in your Bibles at Philippians chapter 4 starting in verse 6. This passage that we that Zeke read to us, Philippians chapter 4 If you have a Bible, um, I encourage you to find it. If you don't have one, getting a Bible is a great thing. And um, bringing it to church with you is a great thing. It will help you learn how to read it. Now, Philippians, the Bible is hard to read. um, That's for sure. Uh, Some people say it's foolproof, and I think that's true. In other words, the overall message of it is easy to ascertain. There is a God, and He has a great love for us. But there's a lot of details in it that are flabbergasting. (laughs) Sometimes it helps to know a bit of the background. Uh, This book of Philippians, it was a letter written by Paul. It's a letter of friendship. He's in Rome. It's somewhere in the early 60s AD. So 60 years into the first century. Now, about 11 or 12 or 13 years or so before this, Paul had gone to the city of Philippi as a missionary. Christianity had not been in that region. He introduced it there. And he goes there. We know that he shows up in Philippi for the first time in the year 49 AD. And he starts this church in that city. And we don't know how long he stays. But we know why he left. He left because he and Silas, not, not my son, but... This other guy, Silas, his missionary partner. While they were in Philippi, they had cast a demon out of a young lady. Now, her, she, she was a slave and her owners were pimping her out. Now, did you see the movie Slumdog Millionaire? That's a sense of what it looks like with street children in slavery. Okay? So she had these owners that were using... Uh, apparently, this demonic possession she added, "given her some sort of ability to tell the future. So her owners were using her to make money. Now, when Paul and Silas, Shay and Silas, when Paul and Silas cast the demon out of her, her owners get very upset because their source of income has been taken from them. So they incite a mob. The mob attacks Paul and Silas. They get, the government gets involved. The government then beats Paul and Silas, arrests them for disturbing the peace, right? They get arrested. And then after they're beaten and imprisoned, they're finally released and run out of town. Now, that was about a decade before Paul is writing this letter. That's how the church got started. The church of Philippi, it got started in the context of conflict And hostility. And that's critical for when you read this letter. Look back at chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him. This is astonishing. But also suffer. It's been granted to you. It's been gifted to you. That's a strange way of thinking of it. But that you should also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The Christians in Philippi are suffering. And they're suffering because they have enemies and these enemies are harming them. Philippi was a, was a painful environment for Christianity to get started. And here we are a decade later and apparently nothing has changed. And that's not the only way they suffer. You see, about seven years before Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, about seven years before this, now he had already left the town... He had already gotten beaten. The conflict, the persecution had already started. He's run out of town. And some years go by, and we don't know exactly when this is, but Paul comes back to Philippi, which is an amazing thing, right? Back to the place where you've been assaulted by a mob. He goes back to Philippi, back to this church, and while he's there, while he's in Philippi, he writes a letter to another church, to the Christians in Corinth. Now, this is in our Bible. It's the letter of 2 Corinthians. So, this is seven years before the current letter of Philippians. He's in Philippi and he's writing to Christians in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, listen to what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, that's the Philippians. Philippi, it, it was a Roman outpost in the. In, interior plain of eastern Macedonia. So he's talking about the Christians in the area where he is when he's in Philippi. And listen to what he says. For a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. There is a famine in another part of the world. Paul was collecting money to give relief to Christians. And the Philippians, who are in abject poverty, this is amazing. They're begging Paul, let us help. And Paul's like, you've already given all you can afford. And they were like, oh, no, no, (laughs) we can give so much more. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, that's the letter to the Second Corinthians written in 56 AD. Now, fast forward to the early 60s. Paul is in Rome, 800 miles from Philippi. And he's writing the Philippians a letter. See, he's got this habit. He starts a church, he goes back and visits. And then if he can't visit, he sends them a letter, okay? One more piece of background information as we prepare to hear God's voice to our church this morning through Philippians. When Paul writes the letter to the Philippians, he's not in some safe hotel tucked away. You know what he's doing in Rome? He's arrested. He's under arrest. He's not writing this letter from some... Journalist hotel, safe from the conflict. He's writing this letter from a cell. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what's happened to him? Well, since the day they've met him, what's been happening to him? And now he's in prison in Rome which is not a safe place to be in prison. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, but my imprisonment is for Christ. He doesn't say it's unfair. He doesn't say, I've, you know, I've been mistreated. And so here we have Paul imprisoned, suffering... Prison was a very different experience then. It's terrible today. It was a different experience then. He's writing to a church that is in abject poverty and persecution. So this is the context of the letter. From one sufferer to another. And in our passage that Zeke read to us, Paul has the gall to say to the Philippians... Rejoice. That's the context. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I mean, you can read that verse and think this is some really rich white person in Western America sitting in his opulence, right? Joy untrammeled, unmitigated joy. He's saying that in the midst of my suffering and in the midst of your suffering, joy. Not because you like to suffer. He's not some sadist, right? He's not saying rejoice in your suffering. He's saying rejoice in what? In the Lord. Again, I'll say it because some people are thick-headed, right? You need to hear it again. Again, I say it, rejoice. He's not talking about a feeling. Rejoice isn't feel something. Rejoice is an activity. It's an action. Rejoicing is a moral obligation. It's something you do. He uses a form of the verb that is a command that means to continually and habitually do it. He commands them, rejoice over and over and over until it becomes habit. Now, for some of you, rejoicing is not second nature. It's not first nature. It's like way down there in the eighth or ninth category, right? But Paul says, do it. Do it anyway. Make a choice. Choose to rejoice continually over and over. Give voice to your joy. Vocalize your joy in songs and words and prayers. Rejoicing is something you do not with your feeler, but with your vocal cords and your tongue and your lips. Rejoice always. Rejoice when you wake up in the morning and you're in abject poverty. That's who he's writing to. And you're being persecuted and your mother's been persecuted and your siblings and your children rejoice and throughout your day and before you go to sleep at night. This is something you do. And for the Christians in Philippi and for Paul himself, this includes when life hurts and when life is, It's difficult. And when you're suffering at the hands of enemies, whether your enemy is your own body that has suddenly turned against you or your enemy is your ex-spouse or the government or your neighbor, always rejoice. You see, rejoicing is a distinctive mark of the Christian life. The mark of the Christian life is not success. It is not wealth. It's not riches. Clearly not for the Philippians. Not in this point. And clearly not for the majority of Christians in the world today. A mark of the Christian life, we see it here, is joy. No matter the circumstances. Now look at verse 5. Philippians chapter 4 verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness. It's a word that describes a person who is humble and patient when they're being treated with injustice, disgrace, hatred, and malice. That's the word in Greek. In face of all of that, you are gentle. You're meek. Let that be evident to your persecutors. Let your humility and your patience be... You know what? If you're familiar with the Bible, this to me is the image of Stephen as he's being stoned. In the midst of his execution, his, re, his gentleness is put on display. And it's another command. Grammatically, we call this an imperative. Just like verse 2. So two commands. Rejoice always and let your reasonableness, your gentleness be evident to all even in the face of mistreatment. And suddenly we're told why. Why in the world a Christian is so distinctively marked by a deep and profound joy that issues forth like a geyser and rejoicing and gentleness? Why? Verse 5. Because the Lord is at hand. Now, there's, the words not because is not there in your Bible most likely. It is definitely implied in the original language of the New Testament. Rejoice always. Let your reasonableness be made evident to all. Verse 5. And then the last part of verse 5. Because the Lord is at hand. Now there are two ways in which the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. First of all, the Lord is near in the sense for Paul that he is going to return physically to this earth soon. His return is near. His return is at hand. The coming of the Lord is soon to be. This is a significant part of our focus for Advent season. I was reading a book recently on following the Christian calendar and this lady named Lauren Winter, she said, Christ drew me to himself and the Christian calendar keeps me focused on him. And that's what Advent does. It, In the midst of our life, it makes us Remember that Christ is coming back. And so for these four weeks, we've been reading Scripture and talking about it over and over. The Lord is at hand. He's near. And when you're suffering, you need that. You need to know that He's going to come back. That you and I, we are preparing and waiting and longing and expecting Christ to return and to make His world new again. I'm tired of this world. You know, Virginia Tech, again, Again, I long for Christ to return and to make all things new, to put evil and death to death, finally and forever, to remove forever these evil powers that enslave us, to end corruption in government, to make everything new. And because this is going to happen, rejoice. It is going to happen. And in the face of enemies, in the grip of suffering, in the midst of pain and loneliness and loss and grief and tragedy, we rejoice. Why? Because He is coming back. And when He does come back, you know what He will do? He will wipe every tear from every eye. And neither shall there be death no more, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain. All of it gone. So rejoice. It's going to happen. But that's not all. The Lord is at hand is not only about the return of Christ. It's also about the physical nearness of Christ right now. See, Paul's doing a double entendre here. You can that goes both ways. The Lord is at hand is not only chronological, it's spatial it's not only that His return is soon, it's that His presence is close. In terms of time and in terms of space, the Lord is at hand. Now, I've talked about this many times because it is so important to understanding the biblical view of reality. For the Jewish people of the Old Testament, and Paul was a devout Jew, when it comes to heaven and earth, These are not two locations. These are two dimensions of the same reality. I mean, you've got to think of this like you think of the weight of an object and the volume of an object. Two different ways of talking about the same object. Two dimensions of the same reality. Heaven is the dimension where God is visibly present in the Bible. Now look, you've been programmed by hymns and by popular mythology, by Plato and all the ways from Platon, you've been programmed that heaven is a place far off. That is not anywhere in the Bible. In the Bible heaven and earth are overlapping, interlocking dimensions of the same reality. This is, I've said it, this is the way Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration could have a conversation with two people who have been dead a very long time. Now, you've got to ask yourself, did they get a get-out-of-heaven-free card? Did they get on a bus somewhere out there, wherever heaven is, past Pluto, and ride here to meet with Jesus? No. God just unzipped the veil. That separates heaven and earth. Heaven is God, it's the dimension where God is present, where God is visible. Earth is this thing that we can see and feel and taste and touch and measure. See, this is the flaw of Enlightenment science. It thinks if it can't measure it, perhaps it does not exist. But heaven and earth is a, is a steadfast confession of a reality that our world doesn't always embrace, that there is a dimension of this reality that cannot be seen with these eyes. So think about this, the Lord's Prayer. This morning, very early this morning, I'm walking through our city, I'm walking through town, and I'm praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven. Now see, if I have a biblical understanding of what that means, it's the exact opposite of a Western idea, right? So in the West, we think our Father who is in heaven means what? God, you're way off. Somewhere out there, I can't see you. When I die, I'll get there. But in the biblical view, our Father who is in heaven says what? Right now, I'm walking through this town with all of its glory and brokenness, and you are near. You are here. I can't see you. I long for you. But you are in heaven. You are here. You're in this overlapping, interlocking dimension that I can't see right now. Now, once we get a glimpse of what's going on in the Bible with heaven and earth, we're ready to feel the power of why Paul can rejoice after a lifetime of missionary suffering. And by the way, it doesn't end well for Paul. Why can he say rejoice? Because the Lord is at hand means for him he's coming back and all the injustice of the Roman Empire will be dealt with. But also because right now, in prison, writing to you, people I love like my own children who are suffering under poverty. When you suffer under poverty in a, in a society that has no social net, do you know what that means? Writing to those people, he's able to say rejoice in the Lord always. And not only rejoice, let your gentleness, your response to this, your reasonable, gentle response to this, let it be so powerful that it's evident to all. Why? Because the Lord is near. He's near to me right now as I'm writing this letter to you. And he's near to you right now while you are suffering unimaginable horrors. The Lord is near. He's close. He is there. You can't see Him always. And there's times in life, whole seasons in life, when you can't feel Him. But He's near. Verse 6. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... With By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You see, Christians do not have to live with anxiety. The Lord is near is the center of this whole passage. Everything flows into and out of that. Because the Lord is near, I can rejoice. Because the Lord is near, I can have this incredible, um, mind-boggling response to, to persecution and suffering. And because the Lord is near... If you really believe that, if you really own it in your imagination... See, the problem with some of us is that we believe it in our head, but our imagination is in the grip of all the magazines and books and TV shows we watch so that the the geography of our imagination keeps us from rejoicing and it keeps us from this gentle response and it keeps us from peace. Do not be anxious about anything. We can safely entrust our life to God with prayer and thanksgiving. Why? Because He's near. He sees. He cares. Because my prayer doesn't have to pass Pluto to get to God. Because right now when I can't pay the bills, He is near. He knows. You know, in in the night when your child gets scared, all they need is their parents' nearness. The situation doesn't have to change. And if you can once again become a child, and in your imagination know Papa is near, then you're not anxious. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Do not be anxious. Do you see how for Paul, this notion of heaven and earth, it's, it's, a, it's a heart of all that he's saying here. Our Father who is in heaven. Right now, while I'm suffering, you're in heaven. You're near to me. I can't see you, but you are here. While I'm being mistreated, while I'm being abused and in poverty and confused and rejected. This is why the great 20th century theologian, Karl Barth, he would say that the Christian joy is a defiant nevertheless. That's the reason Paul can be in prison rejoicing. It was a defiant nevertheless. Nevertheless, what this present reality is saying to me, nevertheless, the Lord is at hand. Christians who know that God is close and that He is coming back, we can take everything to God in prayer with thanksgiving. All the details, all the circumstances of our life. When others are filled with fear and worry, we submit our case to a God who is near. And we can accompany it with thanksgiving. You see, Paul could not imagine a Christian life that was not... A constant outpouring of gratitude. In fact, I've said this before, in Romans chapter 1, another letter that Paul wrote, it is the lack of gratitude that is the first step to idolatry. Thanksgiving, it's the basic posture of the Christian before the Father. It's the recognition that every gift is from God. This is the opposite, right, of Atlas Shrugged, of this bootstrap mentality. It's the explicit acknowledgement that we are completely dependent upon God. And this leads to verse (laughs) 7. This is an incredible passage. When our imaginations and our thoughts and our lives are focused on the physical nearness of God and on His soon return, then we are able, like Paul in verse 4, to rejoice... And in verse 5, to have this gentle response. And in verse 6, to deny anxiety, a foothold in our life. And you know what God will do in return when that is the shape of your imagination. You know what God will do in return? Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. In Christ Jesus. This is God's alternative to anxiety. Our circumstances may not change. We may not understand why something is happening. We may not figure it all out. The suffering may continue, but God's peace will be like an army garrison set up around your heart and your mind, guarding you so that you do not fall prey to crippling worry and anxiety. But remember, the key to all of this is where do you believe God is? Do you believe He's near? And do you believe He's returning? If you don't believe that, it it, it all spins out of control. It's like a nuclear reactor that's overheating. It can't contain it. So as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ, the coming of God into human flesh to deliver us, From our great enemies. We can know. That he will come again. And we can hear the words that grace read to us. Out of Zephaniah. Chapter 3. Listen to these incredible words. Sing aloud. This is God's word to you. Right now. Why, Why do we do this thing on Sunday morning? Why do we sing? Because it's a part of the DNA of what it means to be a Christian. And why, by the way, do churches in places of suffering not take the singing out of their service? Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. You see, Paul is not making this stuff up. He was seeped in this tradition. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. That's our view of heaven right there. That he's among us. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. Look, we are Zion. This is us. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He, this is amazing, he will rejoice over you with gladness. Can, Can you see it right now? That the risen Christ himself is walking among us, singing over us, rejoicing over us. He will rejoice over you with gladness. I love this verse. He will quiet you by his love. Right? This is a child screaming his head off and his mother coming to the child and singing to the child. And the child goes quiet. This is the image of our God. This is what He does for us. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. God Himself will take us in all of our mourning and bring us to the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise. <laughs> you think of Mary Magdalene, right? You know, you think the woman caught in adultery. Shame being turned into Praise at that time i will bring you in at the time when i gather you together for i will make you renowned i will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when i restore your fortunes before your eyes says the lord church as we give ourselves to the journey of advent to the discipline and practice of Advent. As we take time to sit quiet before the Lord, to repent and to meditate on the coming of Christ, you know what we're doing? We're giving our heart a chance to be shaped by this narrative, by this view of reality, by this way of living. We're giving our heart a chance of being shaped by the habit of rejoicing. And as we do that, Joy will become the distinctive feature of our life. Let's pray.